0: Today we're going to be in Revelation 19. Well, last time we pretty much wrapped, on, wrapped up Babylon and God's destruction of it. And today we're going to see the rejoicing, heaven's rejoicing over Babylon's destruction. The marriage supper of the Lamb, what it means, and Christ's return to earth. The Lord's going to come back and finish the redemption process. And some may say, well, I thought we were redeemed. Redemption really is a process. And as, we, as I go through it a little further, I'm going to bring out different elements of redemption. But Jesus died for our sins. He shed his blood, at Calvary's cross. And uh, you know, we believe in that sacrifice, and our sins are, are forgiven. And we have been justified. It's a positive action bestowed on us by God. And one of the down payments of this redemption process is the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, a part of God, imagine that, that resides in us. What better deal can you ask for than that? So that's part of the down payment of the redemption process, and we're going to see how that it really culminates and, and comes to a head here. We're going to see another supper. This is the birds of the, of the air uh, that are going to feed on the dead from the battle of Armageddon. A little gruesome, but we'll, we'll get through it here. So chapter 19, verse 1. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The first verse, it says, after these things. Now, we're going to see these words, these phrases in the Greek, meta tauta which means after these things. And understand that there's a a chronological meaning assigned to that. Uh, Some people will say, well, you know, the Bible's all symbolic, or the book of Revelation, you can't make head or tail, that's not true. There's order in this book. Meta, tauta, after these things, Babylon, the destruction, then I saw this happen. So there's an order here. This is heaven's response to Babylon's fall. Now, if this was a movie, this would be the part where the good guy wins at the end, and the hero, right? The victorious hero, and it's a good thing. That's what we all look for at the end of those movies. It's a bummer when we see evil win, and, you know, it's not a movie that we really want to see, but this is it, and it must have been a wild scene. Voices from heaven praising God, the 24 elders, which we saw earlier in the book of Revelation, and the four living creatures fall down and worship God, and heaven is bustling with activity. But my question is, what does worship really mean to us? What do the words alleluia and amen mean? Is that just part of Christianese? That's what we say when we become saved, we learn to speak the lingo? Because there's a lot of it here and there's a lot of it in the scripture. Now, the scholarly answer is that both of these words were transliter- transliterated from the Hebrew to the Greek. And all that means is the word was, instead of uh, the, the meaning brought into the Greek, the actual word was retained and brought into the Greek with the Greek alphabet. That's the scholarly answer. But what they are basically is hallelujah comes from the Hebrew, hallelu and yah. And if you take them together, it's an imperative, a command. You praise the Lord. So when you say hallelujah, you're saying you praise the Lord. Me too, but you, you know, let's praise the Lord. And amen also comes from the Hebrew, and it means so be it, or to be firm, or to be in agreement. So somebody says something and it's, you know, it's something scriptural and it's, it's right on. You say, amen. I agree. I'm in agreement with that. That's what those words mean. Verse 6, the word omnipotent can also mean all-powerful or almighty. I think of nine, Psalm 97, 1, where it says, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. He is all-powerful. And we can, we can bet on that. Now, taking this all together and meditating on it, imagine a president or a ruler or a governing body that did everything perfect right certainly appropriate in our time period because we don't see that especially with our leaders they're not swayed by public opinion polls or lobbyists or and they're not forced when they get into office to return political favors well that's what we have in our God and much more perfection and righteousness everything that he does is perfect and we are just so happy to be under and be uh, submissive to a, a governing body, our God, who's perfect. No complaints. What can we complain about? Everything he does is righteous. Or um, to figure out what kind of just happened, maybe the Apostle John is looking at the, the, the creatures, the elders, the angels, and they, he looks at all this stuff. And to make head or tail of it, it kind of reminds me when, if you've ever seen a group of guys get together to watch the Super Bowl or something, And uh, the the favored team finally crosses with the last touchdown or or field goal. And your team wins. And all the guys jump up and scream. And they're so excited. And I'm sure, I know I've walked into that before. But the cool thing here is our team wins. We get excited over sports events or our team or our kids playing sports. But man, this is like the culmination of our team winning. It's very exciting. And this is what John was experiencing. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I, the Apostle John is speaking here, fell at his feet to worship him, But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's take this apart a little bit. The marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the last step, really, in the redemption process of the saints. Now, let me, again, let's go into redemption again. Um, If you look in the dictionary, redemption, buyback, can mean to mortgage. It, there's a lot of different synonyms for redemption. So let's just talk about it in the terms of my house. I've had the same address for the last eight years. If somebody comes to my house, they say, this is Joe's house. If the bill collectors want to send me a bill for my utilities, they send it to Joe's house and Joe's address. But do I really own that house yet completely? Yes and no. You come to my house, my wife has decorated Joe's house, right? But until I sign the last mortgage payment and send it into the bank and they send me the deed, that's really not my house. So this is helping you to understand the whole redemption process. If somebody breaks into my house, I can have them arrested or I could do it myself. (laughs) So anyway, um, the wife, the wife is really the group of believers Okay, in this, a, there is a symbolism here, and she makes herself ready for the, the groom who is Jesus Christ. Now, this is the relationship between Jesus and the church. as a, Jesus as the husband or the groom and the church, believers collectively as the bride. Now, this isn't unusual. It's not unusual because in the Old Testament, if you look especially in the prophetic works, Israel was the bride to Yahweh, to God the Father. And you saw that relationship between Israel and God. Okay, so nothing unusual here. I'm just going to read a few scriptures to help to explain it. The first thing is, if you're looking at parables, Jesus spoke about the parable of the ten virgins, uh, the parable of the wedding feast. And in Ephesians 5, a few verses, and I read this at weddings, part of it. Ephesians 5:25 it says, Husbands, love your wives. All right, how do I love my wife? Well, I'm going to tell you how to love your wife love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Wow, that's a pretty heavy love. That's some standard to, to look at when I'm loving my wife. And it's, it's something that husbands should try to achieve, that he, switching to Jesus, might sanctify and cleanse it, the church, with the washing of water by the word. And we know that the word is regenerative. Romans 10, 17, I believe it is, right? It, it gives life. It, it regenerates us. Okay, so when we read the Bible and we're changed by the Word, uh, we, we start to become cleaner in our lives. That He, Jesus, might present it, the church, to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So we're starting to see the relationship between Jesus and the church. Now, I'm going to use a few different illustrations to really nail this home. This whole marriage supper of the lamb, you know, the wife making herself ready, Jesus coming for the church. Um, I'm going to go to the Jewish wedding customs back then, which were somewhat of a lengthy process. And then I'm going to go back and forth between the Jewish wedding customs and spiritually, Jesus and us. And hopefully it'll make sense. In Jewish wedding customs, the parents would get together and say, I have a fine son here. And the other parents would say, I have a fine daughter here. And they would make an arrangement for a marriage. Now, it's kind of funny because God the Father said, I have a fine son here, and I'm going to send him, because God so loved the world that he gave his son to the church. Second point, oftentimes money would be exchanged between the parents. Well, Jesus' blood paid for us. It brought us back out of the slave market of sin, back to the custom There was an announcement, a a grand announcement about this union that was to get together. When Jesus died on the cross, he announced to the world that he was willing to redeem them. If I am lifted up, Jesus says, I will draw all peoples unto myself, all peoples. Uh, What's interesting, too, about the Jewish custom was the the groom would actually go away, right, for a time and not see this bride-to-be. And he would actually build an addition onto his father's house. Does that sound familiar? John 14, Jesus says, In my father's house are many mansions. If this was not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back for you. This is striking parallels between the Jewish wedding customs and Jesus and the church. There was a betrothal period. And that's really where we are now. This is the betrothal period. We're... we're we're engaged to, to Christ, we're, we're going to see him, but there's kind of a separation period, but it's going to seal the deal when he comes back for us. And then there's the preparation. The bride would prepare herself because she didn't know when the groom was going to come back for her, so she would make herself ready and be prepared. And that's really, as believers, that's our sanctification process. That's where we start to uh, grow in the word and we become more Christ-like and we prepare ourselves spiritually. And the last step is that the groom claims the bride. He comes at a time, usually at midnight, at a time when she's not expecting, so she's always got to be ready, and he comes in like the victorious prince and he claims his bride, come with me. And that's what the rapture is a picture of. Jesus comes back and he claims us at a time that we don't know, so we should always be ready. This is so cool, studying this. I just got so excited. Okay. (laughs) Can you tell? I'm actually containing some of it. Three more examples. Earthly wedding versus our relationship with Christ. When I got married, I was nervous. I had the jitters. I did surprisingly well. I didn't pass out. But my wife was sick to her stomach really sick now let me help you with this it wasn't because she was getting married to me (laughs) believe me she really wanted to marry me I mean come on (sighs) kid in a spiritual sense though many Christians are not ready to live with Christ forever and that's tragic some are still worldly some are still carnal and some have a mindset that's way off earthly wedding. What an embarrassment it would be in the Hebrew culture and the culture today if the bride changed her mind and stands up to groom, maybe for an old boyfriend. You know, many Christians are still in love with their old boyfriends. And you know what the old boyfriend's name is? The world. We come out of the world, we get saved. And then for some reason, time goes by and there's some Christians that are in love with the world again. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can make this commitment because I still love the world. It's interesting, isn't it? Maybe not ready for Jesus to come at any time. I want this event to happen first. Okay, that event is past. Well, then I want this event. Jesus, can you just, just for me, can you just hold everything up because I got events in my life that I have and I'm really excited for and I'm not ready for you to come back. In an earthly wedding, what if the bride, okay, just applies to guys, too. I don't want to sound sexist here, but what if the bride, instead of getting ready, she didn't care? She didn't run a comb through her hair. She didn't bathe. She didn't brush her teeth for a few days. She doesn't really care. In a spiritual sense, Christianity sometimes doesn't look so hot. What does the world see of Christianity? There's a lot of weirdness in the name of Christianity. So you see those examples, and hopefully that kind of seals the deal for you. But in verse 8... It says, it was granted for the, for the bride to be arrayed in fine linen. Granted, she had permission to be arrayed this way. But the saints performed righteous acts, and that's what she's clothed with. It's the awesome combination. I know Dave's into this. between You see all over the scripture, sovereignty and free will. You see God does his part, and we do our part. And that's the beauty of a relationship. God says, I love you. And there's things that he does for us. But he also expects us to have a relationship with him too. And that's why there is a balance between sovereignty and free will. Because it is a relationship process. What kind of relationship is it when one party refuses to put anything into the relationship? It's a problematic relationship. It's dysfunctional. Salvation, justification, sanctification are all positive acts bestowed on us by God. But we decide as believers how we will live our lives. Are we going to live our lives for ourselves and gratify gratify our flesh? Or are we living for God? It's up to us as the bride to prepare ourselves and don those garments. Are we robed in Christ? Or are we looking pretty disheveled as a bride, spiritually speaking? The donning of garments starts here. Double-mindedness and and waiting until heaven to live for for God is is foolish talk. It's double-minded. Well, I'm just going to wait until I see him, and then everything will be fine. But you might not even recognize him. He might not recognize you. Somewhere between the rapture and the second coming, believers will experience a judgment, but not for damnation. And I'm going to read a few short scriptures to kind of really emphasize this. 2 Corinthians 5.10 starting with verse 9. It says, therefore, the apostle Paul says, we make it our aim, our goal, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, to Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body while here, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So it's our aim to please Christ as our groom. We love him. So we want, to, we want to be on our best behavior. We want to do things that make him happy, that please him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, it goes into a little bit more detail here. The Apostle Paul says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That's the foundation. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, earthly things... Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work, what sort it is. If anyone's work which he had built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through the fire. How did you live your life, right? You get the impression that we all stand as this judgment seat, right? It's the it's The behemoth seat you've heard, it's conjugated tas in this particular passage, uh, but it's, a, it's different from the great white throne judgment, which we'll see later on, the unbelievers and the rebellious. This is more, people have explained it like the Olympics, like you're judged um, the gold, bronze, uh, silver, whatever, uh, not less of damnation, but more to see what did you do with your life while you were on, on the earth. And I believe that there are some Christians that are going to get into heaven, you know, they're standing there, there's their works, what would you do? fed my flesh. I didn't really care to help anybody else. I didn't, wasn't really moved by the Spirit to have compassion. Your, your works, they're going to be burned up. But you're going to escape just as through the fire. Kind of reminds me of almost as if as you get up there, you're kind of doing this and your butt's a little singed from the fire. Oh, I just made it. You know, that's certainly not what we want. Verse 9, it says, Blessed are those called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is the fourth blessing of this book. Blessed are those that are called. And what a great time it's going to be. And in verse 10, the Apostle John does this thing again with, or I believe this is the first time, and then it happens again in Revelation 22, where, again, if if we're looking at what's happening in the Apostle John, he's seeing these visions. It's really overwhelming. Maybe it's a sensory assault to his eyes, his ears, and his his nerves. You know, whatever's going on is really moving him i'm sure and he kind of falls down to worship at the foot of the angel and i think it just was a it was a stupid moment but i'm sure any of us if we were in that position would have had that moment but logic tells us that jesus can't be an angel as some groups claim because an angel does never accept worship and we see that here a good angel anyway And as a matter of fact jesus while he was on earth several attempts were made on his life. They attempted to stone him, but he he was able to get away for equating himself with God. So here's another proof text of the deity of Christ in a roundabout way. But the angel says something interesting. He says, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He kind of redirects John's focus. What you did kind of was really not a good thing. Let me just get it in your head what you should be looking at. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Focus on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is foundational to understanding all of God's word. And I'm just doing my job as an angel. There's where your attention should be focused on. Pastor Anthony, uh, a few weeks back, talked about great scripture in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter. He talked about how we fit in as the body of Christ. As we fit in really as the bride of Christ. And you can use those two words synonymously. And the question is, do we? Or do we march to the beat of our own tune? Now, some, some try to stand out. And I even see this with pastors. They try to stand out and be on the edge and have everybody come to them because they have information that no other pastors have. And that's really rooted in Gnosticism. I'm quite the boring guy. Ask my wife, I'm going to stick with what's right there. Nothing new. I'm not going to give you anything new, nothing pizzazz. I'm just going to give you the same old Bible, which is which has done its job for several thousand years. That's where I'm going. But when we're in the body of Christ, do we march to the beat of our own tune or do we try to fit in and harmonize with the rest of the body parts? Because as the bride of Christ, we make up the bride collectively. What if as I'm talking to you, my my hand starts to do this and my foot starts to do this and I'm trying to make a point. Now you're more distracted by what I'm doing up here. It's like, that's weird, Joe. Right? Because now I'm not making the point anymore, but my body parts are just doing their own thing. You know, my neck is... They don't want to be in harmony with the message of God. And that's kind of what we do as believers when we're the part of the body that just doesn't mesh with being of the same mind of Christ. So that's one example. And the question is, do we want to hear... And we've all heard this. When you get to heaven, Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant. We all want to hear that, the parable of the good steward, right? Or or, or are we going to hear, and this is something we don't want to hear, when we get in, Jesus goes, man, you just made it. You you see how close you are to the flames of hell? I mean, that's not something we want to hear. I'd rather hear the former, personally. So we have that, uh, the marriage thing and the bride, and I believe we've really hit that from all angles but the next step here is that christ is now united to his bride chronologically in this book his true church and he will come back to the earth uh, as we're already in heaven All right? he comes back with the armies of the saints zechariah 14 is another proof text for that okay verse 11 then i saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true try to get the image in your mind i mean this is just wild And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his heads were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, is that fine linen again, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron." He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here is the second coming of Christ. You can find this in Matthew 24. Uh, You could call it the eschatological passages and uh, Luke 21. Now we saw in Revelation 4, chapter 4, the door of heaven opens. And we only see this twice. The door of heaven opens and John is called up to heaven which was a type of the rapture, the church being removed from the earth and uh, residing and, you know, maintaining themselves in heaven for some time. And then the door opens again here and Christ comes out and the armies of heaven follow him. And the saints come back with him. Now, I just want to go through some differences, especially if maybe you're new or not really familiar with the stuff between the rapture and the second coming. Okay, the rapture, the Greek word is harpazo, which is a, a snatching away, right? The rapture is for the saints. Christ comes, could be today, could be tomorrow, could be next year, could be 10 years from now. We don't know. Christ is going to come for his saints. And in the second coming though, he comes with the saints, Some people try to put the rapture and the second coming together, but there are some very strong differences between the two events. So he comes for the saints in the rapture, but in the second coming, he comes with the saints in tow, so to speak. The rapture, Jesus is in the clouds of the air. He never leave, leaves the clouds of the air, doesn't touch down to the earth. But in the second coming, the Bible says that he does touch down to the earth. And that's, that's obvious. Uh, the rapture is for comfort and for peace. But the second coming is for conquest and for war. The rapture is because Jesus spilled his blood. And we've accepted that, that we believe in what he did for us. Jesus spilled his blood. In the second coming, he's going to have blood stained, but it isn't going to be his blood or his saints' blood. It's going to be those of his enemies. So a big difference. The rapture cannot be calculated. We don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, But I do strongly believe that the second coming will be calculated. And when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, that was a calculation. That's why when the disciples, um, Matthew just left his tax-collecting booth. He was making a fortune, hand over fist, working for the Romans. Jesus came, he was like, I don't need this anymore, and he followed Jesus. The fishermen, drop the nets, leave, leave the father in the boat, right? And they go follow Jesus. Why? Because you could have calculated, based on Daniel chapter 9, any good Jewish boy, if he knew his Bible, from the time of the Persians sent the Jews back to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, it was so many years. So the Jews were on edge at the time Jesus came. And when he started performing miracles, when he, the way that he spoke, the, 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 the authority that he wielded, they just left what they were doing and followed him. I believe the second coming is the same way. You see the great tribulation happen, the rapture happens, the great tribulation, and there's a seven-year period according to Daniel chapter 9, and you can pretty much calculate to the second coming when Jesus will come back in glory and power. The descriptors, one, he's riding a white horse. This is a picture of a victor. We saw that in the, uh, the gospels he rode on a donkey. The first time he came meek and mild, but those days are over. The first time he came to die. Second time he's going to come to shed blood. His names are faithful and true. You have to really meditate on that. Faithful. Think about the opposites. What's the opposite of faithful? Faithless, unreliable, undependable, and many synonyms that go with that. That's the world. He's true. Everything, God is truth. One of his attributes is that he's truth. Um, What's the opposite of truth? Lies, falsity. The Antichrist, his kingdom will wield these lies and falsities to get the masses uh, dumbed down and and following them blindly. And you can see that today. Why do we need, (laughs) I believe the rate of attorneys is astounding in the state of New Jersey. Why? Because if you shake somebody's hand today and say, we we agree, we agree. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to give you money back. plus No problem. Handshake. Forget about it. That person won't pay you back. If you don't get an attorney and draw up a contract and sign it, and, the, and then the other, your attorney looks at his contract, and you go back and forth until everybody signs it, why do we need so many attorneys? Because the days of the handshake between two gentlemen are over. They're over. Everyone's looking to stick it to somebody else so they could you know, be ahead of them and, and make money. And some of you might have even been ripped off. You need attorneys. That's just the way our society is, because a man's word is not bond anymore. It's a shame. His eyes were the flame of fire. We saw that in Revelation 1, and that's a picture of judgment. And he has many crowns. And these crowns are diadems as opposed to Stephanos. Different type of crown. This is authority. He's got many crowns. He is the ultimate king of kings. He has a mystery name, um, part of it is, and we don't know that at this time, so I'm not going to speculate. And his robe is dipped in blood. Again, it's not his blood, but the blood of his enemies. I firmly believe that. We covered Isaiah 63, which talks about him being tr- trotting in the wine press and having his garments sprinkled, sprinkled with blood. And uh, he's asked, well, wh- where's that blood coming from? He said, I've tread the wine press alone. He's destroyed the enemies of God uh, and of his people, and his clothes are sp- uh, spattered with blood. In the old days, again, simple imagery, um, <laughs> the story about people squashing the grapes with their feet, that's really true. What they would do is they'd get a big vat and throw all the grapes in there and they'd take their shoes off and they'd stomp through the grapes, stomp, and just make, make a mash out of it. And that was the, one of the ways that they made wine. One of the ways they separated the juice from the, the cellulose uh, part of the, um, the uh, fruit. So there was an imagery there of trotting the wine press. The, the blood and the carnage of, of God's enemies, uh, are gonna be, it's going to be pretty heavy. Now, in verse 14, it says, Well, who are the armies in heaven? Well, couldn't that be angels? Well, if you take that with Zechariah 14.5 and uh, couple it with the fine linen that's given to the bride, the angels certainly could be a part of that contingent, but the saints, the bride of Christ, will be a part of that contingent. And it kind of kills the whole post-tribulation. And, uh, you know, I don't go too much into a lot of these other theories. I do sometimes when I think it's necessary But if you look at Jesus and the church, and that's the church is his bride. We believe, pre-tribbers, believe it or not, that's what we are, pre-tribulation, that Jesus will come back and rapture his saints before the great tribulation, the seven-year period, that last period in Daniel chapter 9. Now, in that seven-year period, well, Satan is going to persecute the church, but he's doing that now. There's no difference. But the addition to that is that God, his wrath is going to be poured out on the earth and all the inhabitants of the earth. So God the Father, Christ's Father, is getting involved in this persecution. Now, if you're a post-tribulationist, you believe that God's going to allow his people to go through the seven years of God's wrath, right, and then remove the church. Now, to me, that's commensurate to Christ letting his bride languish and letting his father beat up his bride, pummel her a little bit, and then at the end of that tribulation period, he's going to take his beat-up bride to heaven, give her a quick dinner, marriage supper, and then say, we've got to go back to earth. So she's got indigestion agita, and she's just been pummeled. <laughs> I just, I don't see that. I mean, if you look at the imagery and the topology and all that kind of stuff, I, I think that's bizarre. But, I mean, I could be wrong. Who knows? Verse 15, the sword. Okay, he's wielding the sword. I'm going to go a little bit more into the sword at the last verse. But the sword... There's a few different Greek words for swords that were wielded in those days. They had, Romans had different swords, a short sword, the longer sword. This sword is very interesting, and in my mind I'm getting a picture of it. There's no average sword in the ancient world, and he sees Christ, and he sees the sword, and in his mind he says, oh, that sword looks familiar. It's a large, broad, it's called a Thracian sword, and it was four to five feet long, and it was wielded by mighty ca- um, I keep thinking to say cavalry. Cavalry, put the V in a different spot, soldiers, the horse-mounted troops. Now, why is that interesting? Because in those days, the, we, they didn't have tanks and Apaches and F-18s and F-22s. They had horses and archers and javelin. And, you know, you fought hand-to-hand. But the, there was a certain type of, if your army had this troop, you would have these men mounted on horses, and they had to be very strong men because the swords were this long and they had to be able to wield these things. So what they would do is if you saw these these horsemen coming to you and it's your village and and this is the type of sword they're, they're wielding, you're in trouble because these guys were very strong and they would take that sword and they would just and they would just start whatever was exposed. If it was your arm, it's gone. Your head, it's gone. If you had light armor, they would cut right through it. These guys were brutal and your army had these type of horsemen, you were winning. As a matter of fact, I know this has nothing to do with the study, but I have the military history channel, and I love it. <laughs> I was watching Genghis Khan and the Mongols. Do you know the Mongols, right, united the Asian part, right, uh, back in the old days? Uh, and what happened was, the interesting about Genghis Khan was when his, all his men were on horses, and what he would do is, he would always go up against armies that were more, that more numerous, and... They would have a false sense of security. And his men were so good on horseback that they would win pretty much every battle. Very fascinating figure in in history. So that's what you're dealing with. So John sees this sword and uh, he's saying, wow, Christ is powerful. This is some pretty heavy stuff going on right now. And verse 16, he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and, and it was written on his thigh. Basically, the king of kings and lord of lords, he outranks any leader who came before him as the ultimate lord and the ultimate king. And you see all the natural images from the natural world that uh, were used so the apostle John could pretty much make head or tail of this, put it down, and, and, and write it down in, a more, in an explainable way, just like Jesus did with the parables. Now, the bottom line is, you want to be on the winning side. You want to be on the winning side. Even today, whether it's a sports team or, uh, you know, the Olympics and you're rooting for the Americans, nobody wants to be on the side of the loser. Nobody does, right? You don't, you don't go into a sport to say, hey, we can't wait to get in there and lose every game. How exciting. You don't do that. This is it. If you're a believer in Christ, you will get to partake in his victory over evil. Now, I just want to say this. There's a lot of violence in here, and there's a lot of judgment. And I want to help to settle you about that. 60, 70 years ago, the complaint was, it's all fire and brimstone. The preachers are just preaching, fire and brimstone, fire and brimstone. And some people had a problem with that. Where's the love? Where's the grace? Years later, today, we're all educated. We're all technologically savvy. We're all, um, you know... In, in society to certain things you do and there's certain things you don't do and I believe that Christianity has catered to that because a lot of American pulpits you won't read about this you won't hear about hell and judgment the pendulum has swung the other way it's gone from where's the love where's the mercy to it's all love mercy and grace but there's no judgment and that's why this can be in our minds at times can be ooh, that's a little heavy because we're not used to it but it doesn't mean that it's wrong it's right let me give you an example. I've always said this, and I believe the Lord gave this to me. What's the sense in knowing that you're saved or in being excited about salvation if you don't know what you're saved from? Think about a child's mind. Sometimes I do this with my son. I'm like, Josiah, you know, one day the Lord's going to come back, and mommy and daddy and, and, and Josiah will all be in heaven, and he's pretty routine. He's got his routine, and he likes that. And he goes, Yeah, but why do I want to go to heaven? I really like my room, I like my toys what's the sense in going to heaven okay so now i explained to him hey we're all sinners <laughs> we deserve hell and uh and he's really good he thinks like an adult and i said uh you know our sin destroys ourselves and god saves us from ourselves and you know there's judgment for the wicked and rebellious and we don't want to be a part of that he goes oh, you know what Daddy, I want me, you, and mommy to go to he- heaven all at the same time, and I can't wait. You see, there's the differences in the, in the child's mind is he was exp- it was explained to him why he wants to go to heaven, why he wants to be with the Lord. Before, it's just like, well, you know, I like everything the way it is. I'm a creature of routine. Why do I want to go to heaven? You see? So to understand salvation, it's really good to understand what we're being saved from. And a lot of times, unfortunately, we're being saved from our own selves and our own wickedness. Verse 17, the last few verses. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Sounds, um, yet you can't wait to go and eat lunch now. <laughs> so here's the second feast. First, you have the feast of the wonderful feast, great celebration, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now you have, there's another feast, the birds of the air are invited to eat the flesh of the wicked dead. Then and now, it was shameful and humiliating not to bury uh, a soldier. Uh, even today, the Americans, whether it's Iraq or Iran or Vietnam, in any nation, I believe, the soldiers will not leave a fallen comrade. Comrade, Live soldiers will go in brave gunfire to pick up their fallen comrades. They're dead just so they could give them a proper burial. So in these days, it's no different. We still retain a lot of the, the decencies and the cultural aspects of ancient cultures. Some we do, some we don't. And to have a, a body rot out into the sun and have it being picked apart by animals was a shameful, humiliating death. Verse 20. The Antichrist and his propaganda minister are captured and have the honor of being the first two to experience the lake of fire. And I'm going to cover that in greater detail in chapter 20, what that means, what it represents. And in verse 21, uh, Jesus, were, they, they were, they, he killed the rest of them Uh, Who wait a minute? And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him Christ who sat on the horse. The sword of his mouth. This is the same word that spoke the world into existence, and it's the same word that will destroy the enemies of God. When God created everything, you know the Big Bang. You know the scientists are like, oh, there was a Big Bang. Well, where did they get the elements from? Uh, We haven't figured that one out yet. So we got something from nothingness, and the something from nothingness explode, and then it made order out of disorder. Yes, that's, that's what we're going to say. But the bottom line is, in Genesis, it says when God created, it says bara, out of nothing. And there's different words for made. He made the elements out of nothing. He just, boom, carbon, hydrogen, little of this, little of that, you know, and he just made it out of nothing. Now, the same word that was used to bring everything into existence is the same word that's going to destroy. Jesus doesn't really have to lift a finger here. I'll just read two, two more verses in Hebrews 4.12. And you can see this spiritually and you can see this physically. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So it, it, does, it does physical work, it does mental work, it does spiritual work. This sword is, is a great tool for pretty much anything. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And that's why the scientists won't acknowledge God. Because if they acknowledge God, then they have to acknowledge somebody's not only smart of them, it's a pride issue, but they have to give an account to God. If you follow a lot of the... Alright, I shouldn't say this. The scientists 200 years ago were mostly all Christians. Something changed in the Darwinian era where they started going against God. Science is science. It doesn't change. But these scientists are trying to use science to disprove God. And there was a a movie or documentary from uh, Ben Stein called Expelled. And he really goes into the ostracization of scientists that believe. They're not even Christians, but they just believe in God and they're, they're thrown out. They're laughed at and they're um, ostracized, and they're fired, and nobody's doing anything about it. This is why I have notes, but where was I going with this? Um, I don't even know. It was nice, though, wasn't it? <laughs> I still don't remember. Eh, with the word, and create out of nothing, and all right, we'll move on. Okay, so lastly here, what do we have? The marriage supper of the Lamb. So do we want to be part of the marriage supper of the lamb or the supper for the birds? Take your pick. It's your pick. You're going to one or the other. Do you want to be the eater or do you want to be the eaten? (laughs) Put in simple terms. You may say, but I didn't get my invitation. And I'm going to say, yes, you did. When Jesus died on the cross, that was the invitation to you. The only question left is, will you stand up the groom? It's the only question left. Logical progression from there is do we want to just barely make it into heaven as the illustration that I did being kind of, you know, smarting from the burning flames and all your works are burned up? Do we want to just barely get there? I've heard people say they just want to barely get in the door. Or do we want to walk the fence as much as possible and see how much we can get away with and still call ourselves Christians? I don't think that's a good choice either. Why do we excel so much in the successes of life, sports, sports, Worldly pursuits, academia, earthly relationships, but put not so much effort into our relationships with with God, which marriage was modeled after in its purest form. We can have relationships with our kids, our spouse, our best friends, but God, well, I'm going to say a few things, read this, and he's going to be happy and get off my back. That's not really how we should be looking at it. My prayer today is that we desire to live victorious in Christ because he is victorious, as we see. We're reading future events and prepare ourselves as his bride. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for...